Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. Isaiah chapter 11, starting at the first verse. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of power. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash round his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. And the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the hole of the cobra. And the young child put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. He will raise a banner for the nations and gather the exiles of Israel. He will assemble the scattered people of Judah from the four quarters of the earth. Ephraim's jealousy will vanish, and Judah's enemies will be cut off. Ephraim will not be jealous of Judah, nor Judah hostile towards Ephraim. They will swoop down on the slopes of Philistia to the west. Together they will plunder the people to the east. They will lay hands on Edom and Moab, and the Ammonites will be subject to them. The Lord will dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. With a scorching wind, he will sweep his hand over the Euphrates River. He will break it up into seven streams so that men can cross over in sandals. There will be a highway for the remnant of his people that is left from Assyria, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. 
In that day, you will say, I will praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. In that day, you will say, give thanks to the Lord. Call on his name. Make known among the nations what he has done and proclaim that his name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for he has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion. For great is the Holy One of Israel among you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Well, let's remain standing and I'll lead us in prayer. As we've been singing, Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would prepare our hearts, uh, help us to receive your word. We ask you to plant your word down deep in us and indeed to cause it to bear fruit, the fruit of lips and lives that declare your praise. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please do sit down. Well, very good to uh, see you. Uh, You're very, very welcome um, as ever. Um, Two things you might like to do. One would be to turn uh, back in your Bibles to the reading that uh, we had earlier in the service, Isaiah chapter 11 and 12, page 696 is the page number. Uh, The other thing that I think you'll find helpful will be to dig out the... um, uh, the sermon outline, and particularly because there's a few quotes on there that you'll be able to follow as I, uh, as I read them. <clears throat> I wonder if the name Bertie Felstead means anything to you. He died in July 2001 at the grand old age of 106. I mentioned him today because when he died, he was believed to be the last survivor of a most famous football match. Legend has it that on Christmas Day 1915... Soldiers from both sides of the trenches in World War I met up in no man's land for a game of football. Now, uh, there's no official record of that remarkable game of soccer, so our knowledge of what actually took place has always been somewhat patchy. But as a member of the Royal Welsh Fusiliers, stationed in northern France, Bertie Felstead recalled that on Christmas Day 1915, after some shouting between both trenches, Bertie and his colleagues got up out of their icy trench and greeted the Germans. Nothing was planned, and so what happened next was entirely spontaneous. A football was produced from somewhere, and as Bertie remembered it, I quote, it was not a game as such, more of a kick-around than a free-for-all. There could have been 50 on each side for all I know. I played because I really like football. I don't know how long it lasted, probably half an hour, and there was no one keeping score. But the Germans probably won on penalties. No, sorry, um, that was what I said, not what he said. Um... What Bertie Felstead did say was that the Germans were all right. Well, it's a great story because in that football match, all the magic of Christmas comes to us. There in no man's land, for a short while at least, war and hostility ended, enemies were united, and there was no more death. If only we could find a way of bottling that moment. If only we could find a way of bringing peace on earth and banish death forever. If only we could find someone who could give us all that. Well, look, here in Isaiah chapter 11, we can. Here is the, in this wonderful chapter, 
is the promised Messiah who gives us what we always wanted. And so we come to our first point on the handout, the Messiah, uh, the leader we all want, chapter 11, verses 1 to 5. A Messiah simply means the Lord's anointed. And the one described, described here in this section, and particularly in verse 2, is uh, anointed by the Spirit. Verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. And so as we look through the, the rest of these verses, we'll see that the promised Messiah spoken of here is the one we all want because he can give us the world we all want. Now you'll recall that chapter 10 ended with the prophecy of the mighty Assyrian Empire being chopped down in judgment. The prophecy actually came true in 609 BC at the hands of the Babylonians, the Medes and the Persians. At that uh, judgment upon the Assyrians, it was so complete that nothing ever arose from the stump of the Assyria again. It was the end of them as a nation forever. But by contrast, while Judah was similarly cut down, here in verse 1 is the promise of a shoot coming up out from the stump. A shoot that would, if you see it there, flourish and produce fruit. And crucially, this promised shoot will come, verse 1, from the stump of Jesse, not the stump of King David. Now, it's the theologian David Peterson who points out the significance of this as he writes, and uh, the quote is on the, on the handout there. Reference to David's father Jesse suggests a radical restart to the whole divine plan to bless Israel through the emergence of a divinely appointed king. Among the many kings of Israel, David alone was called the son of Jesse. If Jesse produces another shoot, it must be another David, not simply another son of David. Now look, this is the, at this point in the Bible, ever since 2 Samuel chapter 7, we've been waiting for a son of David to come and establish the kingdom we all want, an everlasting kingdom of justice and righteousness. But every son of David, that is every king of Judah, was a disappointment to a greater or lesser extent. And not least of all, the current son of David, King Ahaz, that we've been seeing in these early chapters of, of Isaiah. He had singularly failed to trust the Lord. Indeed, we've seen how his ungodly leadership had led people away from the Lord to be under the judgment of God. So here in verse 1 is the wonderful promise that a weak and faithless line of kings will be replaced by one who is completely different, one from the stump of Jesse. Oh, he will still be the son of David, as prophesied back in 2 Samuel 7 and other places. But the promise that he will come from the stump of Jesse tells us that he will be a new David, not just another son of David. He'll be very different then from all the kings before him who failed. And that's what we see in verse 2. This promise shoots from the stump of Jesse will be endowed by God's spirit. Verse 2, the spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. All the kings of Israel were anointed with oil. David, however, was not only anointed with oil, but with God's spirit. Now we see the same is true of this promised Messiah. And it's exactly what happened when Jesus came. Do you remember at his baptism? Heaven was opened and the spirit of God descended like a dove and rested upon Jesus. And then we heard the voice from heaven saying, this is my son whom I love with him. I am well pleased. The Messiah then was anointed with the spirit. And that's why he's just what we all want. 
being endowed with the Spirit, the Messiah rules with a a supernatural ability. Verse 2, he will govern with wisdom and understanding. I love that phrase, wisdom and understanding. When I first um, read the New Testament as an adult, I still remember how that was one of the things that most struck me. As I came face to face with the Lord Jesus in the page of the New Testament, I saw that his words were full of wisdom. What he says makes sense of the world, explains the world the way it is and why it's the way it is, explains why I'm the way I am. Of course, it's not just for me, but uh, for 2,000 years now, Christians have found his teaching to be second to none, teaching us how to live life in in a fallen world. There's no one like him. He can navigate us through the storms of life like no one else can. Uh, That's what he's saying here, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, how we need that. Uh, Just take the Chancellor's autumn statement this week and the announcement that the country will need another five years of austerity to bring us through the economic crisis we're in. Then listen to the opposition who tell us that the Chancellor's got it wrong, that he should act to kickstart the economy. I listened to both of them and I don't know who's right. I'm no economist. Economics A-level was just yet another exam that I failed. Not that having an A-level in economics would make any difference because even the greatest economists in the nation and around the world aren't of a mind for a way forward through this economic crisis. And what is true of the economy is true of so many things in life, from how to run the country, how to structure society, how to lead a family well, issues of human sexuality and, well, how to do almost anything that really matters. There's no common mind, no agreement So how we need someone to lead us, someone who is, as it says here in verse 2, full of wisdom and understanding from on high. That's why we need the Messiah. He is anointed with the spirit of wisdom and understanding. He does know what's best. And I, along with hundreds of us here and thousands in this city and millions all over the world, know that Jesus knows what's best. Anointed with the spirit of wisdom and understanding. And then we also see, verse 2, he is anointed with the spirit of counsel and of power. Now, this is the the ability to plan a military campaign and then to have the force or the power to carry it out. And we know that that's what this is about because in Isaiah chapter 36, verse 5, King Hezekiah uses exactly these words in his military strategy. So here's the point. If we're ever going to enjoy the world we all want, we need someone to deal with the evil enemies that wreck our world. Our world is dogged by conflict. We heard about it again in our prayers. Our world is full of wicked dictators who want to rule the world, or at least who want to rule their little part of the world. Our tyrannical dictators have always been a problem in this world. But now the scourge of the last decade has been the rise in terrorist organisations with the terrorists potentially everywhere. We're fighting an enemy who are not geographically located anywhere. And so have you noticed over these last years the greatest military minds on the planet have devised strategies to rid the world of this wickedness, but global terrorism remains a constant threat? Which tells us that if the great generals and commanders in the world today have found the right plan, they've not had the power to carry it out, or it tells us they've just not found the right strategy yet. Either way, we see how wonderful it is to read of the promised Messiah who is anointed with the spirit of counsel and power, the one who has the ability to plan exactly the right military campaign and then have all the power to carry it out 
so that he can rid, of, rid, of, rid the world of, of all the evil in the world and give us the world we all want. So then, verse two, he will be anointed with the spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit of counsel and power. And also, do you see it there in verse two, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Uh, the Messiah knows the Lord intimately. He fears the Lord. He trusts the Lord perfectly. And knowing the Lord and trusting the Lord is what we all need most of all. And so the one who is full of knowledge and of the Lord uh, and of the fear of the Lord is the one who can meet our greatest need. And do note that, that phrase, now the fear of the Lord at the end of verse two, repeated again in the first line of verse three. That's what this big section of Isaiah has been calling Judah towards, to fear the Lord. Sadly, they failed to do that as we do. But where Judah failed, the promised Messiah would succeed. He's anointed with the Spirit then. But he's more than an anointed human being. Verse 3 tells us something spectacular. He, that he will be able to make judgments beyond what he can see or hear. Verse 3 tells us he's much more than a human. He can look into the hearts of men and women. And because of that, verse 4 Uh, With righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. Now, he's in stark contrast because of who he is. In stark contrast to the terrible leaders of Judah that we saw, well, in chapters 1 to 5 and then in chapter 10 uh, in Isaiah. Uh, He will address the needs of the poor, verse 4, and needy with justice and, and righteousness. John Oswald writes, and again it's on the handout, here is a king in whose hands the concerns of the weakest will be safe. It's lovely, isn't it? Now, we may find ourselves very suspicious of leaders and, and leadership, but when we look at the Lord Jesus, the spirit-endowed Messiah, we see one who we can trust, and it's a good job we can trust him for. Look at the second half of verse 4 and see just how powerful he is. See these phrases in the second half of verse 4? He judges the earth with his word, the rod of his mouth and the breath of his lips. He is so powerful that what he says goes. And we saw exactly that, didn't we, when Jesus walked this earth. Just with a word, things would happen. He only had to say it and it happened. Here we see that he has the final word on everything. And that sort of awesome power, just better say something and it happens. That sort of awesome power is terrifying in the wrong hands. Which is why it's such a relief to read that that sort of power is in the right hands. To read verse 5. Look, righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash round his waist. In other words, righteousness and faithfulness characterize his life. He does right in every situation. He is dependable and true in every circumstance. It's exactly what we saw when the Lord Jesus walked this planet. He always made right judgments because he could see beyond the surface. He could see the hearts of men and women. And so he was able to judge with righteousness and justice. When Jesus walked the earth, we saw one so powerful that with just a word, things would happen. Yet he never abused that power. He was completely righteous and faithful, caring for the needy and vulnerable. This Messiah is the leader we all want. Second uh, on the handout, the Messiah brings the world we all want. Chapter 11, verses 6 to 9. 
Uh, last week as a family, we, we went to Chatsworth House and uh, we looked around the house. Uh, this Christmas, it's been decorated in a pantomime theme. Oh, yes, it has. <laughs> now, if you've been there this year, you'll know uh, that uh, as you near the end of your tour around the house and, and just before the gift shop, there are a half a dozen or eight Christmas trees covered in, in labels, different coloured labels looking about like that, about that size. And labels that guests have been encouraged to write, sending uh, Christmas greetings and making Christmas wishes. Uh, and then they hung, hang them on the, on the trees. Now, while our ch- children uh, wrote out their labels, I had a, a quick look at a number of those labels that had already been hung on the trees, and two of them stuck in my mind. One said... I wish the world peace this Christmas. World peace, that's what we want. And one particularly touching label read, I love you, mum and dad, you'll be missed this Christmas. As I read that card, I thought, yep, death has robbed yet another family this Christmas. And for me, those two labels sums up the world we all want, a world of peace and freedom from death. But it's simply beyond us to bring about that world. Occasionally mankind stops from our frantic actions of self-destruction, most memorably in no man's land on Christmas Day 1915, but it doesn't last. Left to us, world peace will never happen, and the end of death is certainly out of our reach. But here, wonderfully, we discover the Messiah will bring us the world we all want. For when he comes to rule the world, when he comes back, He won't just patch up this sorry, broken world. No, he will bring about a transformation of the entire created order. He'll he'll begin again. Now, we'll look through verses six to nine. As we do, uh, as we look through this section, look out for the great Bible themes and promises that are fulfilled by the Messiah. The imagery here in verses six to nine, in these verses, point us to the restoration of the Uh, of the paradise of the Garden of Eden. They speak of reversing the effects of the fall. Look, verse 6 points to a place where there'll be no more enmity. Verse 6, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion, the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. If you just turn over the page on the handout, you'll see that David Peterson um, explains that last phrase. That last phrase, he writes like this. Restoration of humanity's proper dominion over the created order is suggested by the prediction that a little child shall lead them. Do you remember in Genesis chapter 1? That we will rule uh, the created order. Here a little child can do it. Verse 7 describes a place where there will be no more death. The lion eating straw rather than ripping apart the flesh of gazelle and zebra. Verse 8 shows us this is the place, uh, in this place, the conflict that started in Genesis 3 between the woman's seed and the serpent will be removed. Uh, Do you see it there as we read verse 8? The infant will play near the hole of the cobra, uh, the serpent, and the young child put his hand in the viper's nest. And then in verse 9, we see this is a place that is completely new. Verse 9, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The Messiah will bring us to the new heavens and the new earth, where there will be no harm or destruction, for in the new creation... 
The Lord will be known everywhere and his rule will be experienced everywhere. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. What a place. That's the place the Messiah will bring the world we all want. The Messiah then is the leader we all want, bringing the world we all want. And thirdly on the, on the handout, the Messiah is the want of all nations. Just a bit of a, a, a spelling mistake there. The, the, the want of all nations. Chapter 11, 11, verses 10 and 11, or 10 to 16, really. Let me read from verse 10. In that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him, and his place of rest will be glorious. In that day, the Lord will reach out his hand a second time to reclaim the remnant that is left of his people from Assyria, from Lower Egypt, from Upper Egypt, from Cush, from Elam, from Babylonia, from Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. Uh, Here, Isaiah, you'll see in verse 10, looks towards a day when the root of Jesse, the Messiah, will stand like a great warrior king with a banner calling all nations to himself. Here is the great reminder of the the gospel promise to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through one of his offspring. What a glorious thing it is that all nations will be coming to the Messiah, end of verse 10. And they're going to come to him, end of verse 10, to a place, well, to him who is to come to rest. Again, it's the great gospel promise that runs throughout the scriptures that we hear from the lips of Jesus himself. Remember what he says? Come to me all who labour and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. I think it's odd really when we think of that at Christmas time. Christmas time is a time when we seem to rush around more than ever and become more frantic than ever, more stressed than ever, more unsettled internally than ever. But at the heart of Christmas message is the promise of rest, of well-being, of being at peace with our creator. That's the promise here, and it's for all nations. Jesus is a global Messiah. And so, verse 11, here are God's people, the remnant from all nations, streaming to Jesus. It is actually the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 3, where, do you remember the name Shia Jashub? A remnant will return. Well, here they are, the remnant, the real genuine people of God, returning to the Lord, brought out of all the nations of the world, Nations that at the time were Judah's enemies. Now they're being brought to the Messiah with the remnant, verse 12, coming to him from the four corners of the earth. And in all of this, the Lord brings unity. Look at verse 13. It is a promise of Israel and Judah united again. You remember at the time of writing, they're at each other's throats, they're enemies. Now they'll be united and indeed free in the Messiah because this is the fulfilment of the Exodus. You see that at the end of verse 16. Uh, there was for Israel when they, as, as there was for Israel when they came up from Egypt. It's talking about another Exodus, the great Exodus of people stream to the Lord Jesus. Well, the Messiah, the leader we all want, the Messiah brings the world we all want, the Messiah, the want of all nations, And all that leads to fourth on the handout, the Messiah, the one we should all want to praise. That's chapter 12. See, as we look at chapter 12, we'll see praise. Praise is how this whole section ends. Not just chapter 11, but uh, chapters 1 to 12. This is an end to the whole of this section. Indeed, when we understand chapter 11, when we understand the whole section, 
we should really be left with a heart of praise. Imagine for a moment that you're living in Jerusalem in Isaiah's day. You're one of God's people uh, looking over the walls of Jerusalem and you see out there the mightiest Syrian army on your doorstep. They have conquered all before them. Now God's city is under siege and the Lord himself has told you that this calamity is God's judgment upon the nation. Left to yourself, there is no way out. You are in dire straits. Uh, Left to yourself, you are facing death and judgment. That is it. That's the future. Well, I said, imagine that you're living in Jerusalem in Isaiah's day. You don't have to imagine that you're living in Jerusalem 2,700 years ago because apart from the Assyrian army, the, the Bible tells us our situation is exactly the same. All of us have betrayed our God. And so all of us deserve what we face, a future of death and a fate worse than death, the judgment of God. Now, knowing that, what a glorious relief chapter 11 is. Here is the promise, the sure and certain promise of the anointed Messiah, the one we all want, the one we all need, the one who will bring us all that we want, freedom from death, reversing the curse of the judgment of God. The gospel is such a relief. It is such good news. It leaves us full of praise for our God, or at least it should do. And so here in chapter 12 are are two songs of praise. The first in verses 1 and 2 is a song of praise from us individually. The second is a corporate song of praise. And as we look at the first song of praise, we see very clearly the dominant reason for praising God. Verse 1, I will praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you've comforted me. See, through the glorious Messiah, God's anger has been turned away. At the cross, God's anger was poured out upon him rather than me. It makes your heart sing, doesn't it? Rock of ages cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Being rescued from God's anger makes you want to sing. And to sing of what God has done, verse 2. Surely God is my salvation. I'll trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. And you see it there, tucked in verse 2. I will trust and not be afraid. It's the big thrust of this whole section of the book of Isaiah. We've called it transforming a people to trust. I will trust and not be afraid. I'll trust him and not be afraid of the world. And so when I look at the Messiah and I see what he alone can do to deliver me from God's wrath, I will praise him and trust him as my salvation. In the world, I will not fear. The second hymn from verse four is a corporate hymn of praise. The word in verses three and four, the word you in verses three and four is plural. And verse six, you'll see, talks about the people of Zion singing for joy. It's corporate praise. But before we look at the second song, I love David Peterson's words as he writes, and again, they're on the handout. The form of this song reminds us that although genuine praise ought to be offered by God's people collectively, it must first find individual expression in the life of every true believer. 
So allow me to ask you, uh, each one individually here, is your heart full of praise for the salvation won for you by the Messiah? Is it personal? Is it individual? Are you overwhelmed with praise for the one who has stepped in to take away God's wrath for you? Does every look at the cross leave you thankful and praiseful? Now look, if we all came to church full of thankful praise in our heart to God, then our corporate praise would be so much the richer. Well, that does lead us then to this second song, a song of corporate praise. And you'll see as we look at it in verses 4, 5 and 6, that um, as we praise corporately, we are to exhort one another. First, as we sing, we should spur one another on to verse 4, give thanks to the Lord. Thanking him for salvation. As we sing, we should do that. We should be saying to one another, come on, let's thank him for all that he's done for us in saving us. Uh, Secondly, as we sing, we should be urging one another to, verse 4, call on his name. So as we sing, we should be saying, come on, make sure together we call on the Lord to help us. To help us to be a people who trust him and who don't fear the Lord, who don't fear the world. Thirdly, as we sing, we should be encouraging each other, verse 4, to make known among the nations what he has done. So as we sing together, we should be encouraging each other to go from here to tell the world, everybody in the world, how great God is and that they too can come to the Messiah who is for all nations. As we sing, we should be encouraging each other to go out this week and make sure we invite people to carols by candlelight. And fourthly, as we sing together, we should be cheering each other on, verse 6, to sing aloud with joy how great the Holy One of Israel is. He is the one we all want. And so it ends saying we should simply want to praise him. And so as we sing together, we should be encouraging each other just to do that. So that's it. Isaiah chapters 1 to 12. I've I've loved it. Thank you very much for bearing with me since September. But let me remind you in a sentence, in a a short paragraph, uh, where we've we've been these last months of our journey through these chapters should have moved us to be increasingly a people who refuse to trust the world and who are determined to put our trust in the Lord alone knowing that he alone is the one who is to be feared, for he alone can deliver us, he alone can bring us salvation. And then when we see his deliverance in his Messiah, when we see his salvation, then we should not only be a people transformed to trust him, but we should be a people who are moved to praise him. For, as it says here, the very last words, great is the Holy One of Israel among us. Let's... uh, Sing then in praise to him. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty. Let's encourage each other as we sing this, not just singing to the Lord, but encouraging each other to be a people who praise him and who declare his praise to the world. Let's stand as we sing together.